Hello everyone, Dr. Stillman here. And today we are going to be talking about supplements that everyone should take question mark exclamation point. And the question mark and the exclamation point are the key, key elements of the title here. Why is this topic so important? You will rarely, if ever catch me saying all of you should take X, all of you should take Y. I have found that when you take care of real people in the real world, even if there's some magical pill that will help them live a longer, healthier, happier life, everyone runs into what we call pill fatigue. Now, there's a lot of money to be made in the supplement space. There's nothing wrong with people making money on supplements. I'm grateful that we have supplements. I use supplements in my daily practice. I don't know anyone in the integrative natural biohacking health space who doesn't. And I want to explain though, the big caveats, pitfalls and perils that I see people falling into when they try to use supplements in order to get well and the mistakes I think they're making when it comes to what they're taking in order to try and, um, expand their lifespan or their health span. Okay. So without further ado, uh, let's jump into it. So we're actually going to start with the post that um, really inspired this. This post is, a, is an old one, but Dave Asprey wrote this post called Top 10 Supplements That Everyone Should Take. And I really take exception to this notion that everyone should take these supplements because I think that's a very, very simplistic view. I'm going to go through some of these and offer you the options that I give patients of here's how you can get this and here's why I think it matters and why or it might or might not be for you. Okay. So first of all, there's some really good pieces of information here. One of the things that he likes to, that he points out that I really think is important is that he says, get the majority of your nutrients from food. If there's one overarching theme in this you know, subject or this video today, that is the single most important take home. The biggest mistake people make with supplements is they think that they're going to fix their dietary mistakes by taking supplements. That approach falls apart time and time and time again. Now, what foods to eat is another story. The top 10 supplements that, and he does caveat it with this almost, which I appreciate. Everyone should take vitamin D, K2, A, C, iodine, krill oil, mag, magnesium, that is, L-tyrosine, zinc, and copper. I do not put hardly anyone on all of these all at the same time. Why? Because you can get all of them to a certain amount from food. And when I'm using many of them, I'm using them in a therapeutic setting where I'm monitoring the person's response to treatment and, or I am monitoring markers of their level. I might run a serum tyrosine level. I might run urinary catecholamine breakdown products. I might run or order a red blood cell omega-3 index. I might order a urinary iodine level. I might order a serum vitamin A and on and on and on, right? I think that's very important because one of the top things I see people coming to me with is they say, I heard I should take X and so I take it and then we run their labs and we see, wow, you actually have an omega-3 level that is twice that of the Inuit and the Eskimo who are supposed to have the optimal levels of omega-3s. You will find that these people are not actually doing well clinically and I strongly believe they're over 
consumption of omega-3s is part of this. You will also find people who don't actually need to take more tyrosine. They don't get a significant clinical benefit. Likewise, you'll find people who take zinc and copper who absolutely don't need it, or sometimes worse, they're overloaded typically with copper, but it is possible to take too much zinc. And with the methylated folate and methylated B12, there are a lot of landmines in that literature that I want to help you avoid stepping on because there's a reason that when you look at the literature on methylated vitamin supplementation, we don't have a simple therapeutic protocol of everyone take X, Y, and Z quantity of this B vitamin or that B vitamin. To be honest with you, this topic is so expansive that I just spent the last hour and a half prepping the papers for it having already spent years reading this literature and trying to sort of sift through uh, what the reality is of this literature. And I got to tell you, there's so much material to cover. There's so many supplements I could pay attention to. I had to pick my top ones, uh, most of which actually didn't make, uh, well, some of which anyway, didn't actually make this list. So what are my top supplements and why? Let's get into that. Okay. So starting with vitamin D. So you're going to hear a ton about vitamin D in the integrative, holistic, natural, functional medicine space. And with good reason, one of the most robust findings in the literature is the association between low storage vitamin D levels and your risk of death, premature morbidity, and mortality. This then stands to reason that if you give people supplemental vitamin D, you will reduce their all-cause mortality and their morbidity. However, what you will find when you go back to the literature is mixed uh, results. And the mixed results are basically this. When you give people vitamin D supplements, you don't always see a positive effect on morbidity and mortality. There's lots of different reasons for this from study design to, you know, um, different types of cohorts they use. And all, I mean, that's a really academic topic, to be honest with you. But the bottom line here is that it isn't as simple as just throwing more vitamin D down the hatch. The other thing is that because you're taking vitamin D doesn't mean that you actually need that vitamin D. I covered this in my video, how I use UVB light to heal, where I talk about the health benefits or potential health benefits of UVB light. I talk about how and why I use it in my practice. And the bottom line here is basically this. I tell my patients who are in a cold, dark place to take 5,000 IU of vitamin D every single day when they are not getting an abundance of ultraviolet light. What does that mean? It basically means that they can't get a sunburn at their latitude. If you can get a sunburn, you can get a significant amount of vitamin D from your environment. Now, you all know that that varies, right? My redheads, my very pale, fair-skinned people, you walk outside on a sunny day in Florida and you feel like you burst into flames versus somebody who's got a more strongly melanated uh, skin pigment, they can sit outside and never get a sunburn in their entire life, right? How does this come through in the literature? When you look at the studies of vitamin D supplementation, it's not actually associated with reducing all-cause mortality. There is one very important uh, caveat to that. Vitamin D supplementation statistically significantly reduced when they looked at all these different studies. And this is one of the most comprehensive papers on this for the record. Vitamin D supplementation statistically significantly reduced the risk of cancer death. That to me is a big deal in a world where cancer used to be very rare and is now, I believe, the number two cause of death in the United States. Okay. So that's why I still use vitamin D supplementation, even though the literature on it is mixed. And the bigger question here is really this. 
and it's the simple fact that giving someone a vitamin D supplement does not have the same power as putting them out in the sun. Remember, and I covered this again in how I heal with UVB light, avoiding the sun is a risk factor for death that's equivalent to smoking. All cause, and this is from the melanoma in Southern Sweden uh, study, they found that all cause mortality was inversely related to sun exposure habits. The mortality rate amongst avoiders of sun exposure was approximately twofold higher compared with the highest sun exposure group. Translation, you double your risk of death compared to if you do not, if you avoid the sun, right? So be aware. I look at sunlight as very much being a critical part of a healthy lifestyle. So that's vitamin D. Melatonin is one of the other supplements that I find myself struggling not to recommend to everyone as they get older, and I want to explain why. This is this is not a very recent paper back in 2002, but honestly, the literature on this, from my perspective, hasn't changed that much. And practically speaking, in the clinic, I'm going to explain why or really where the rubber meets the road. So studies completed, and this is from, from Russell Ryder. Russell Ryder, for those of you who don't know, is like the, the dean of melatonin research in the world. He's done probably more papers on this than anybody. And so he's generally considered the expert. And what they comment on in this paper is that studies completed to date generally suggest that exogenously administered melatonin, translation, supplemental melatonin, may serve to extend lifespan in invertebrates, but evidence supporting this conclusion in mammals is less compelling. I absolutely think that's, I hope that's self-explanatory. It basically means you can make invertebrates live longer with melatonin, but we haven't proven this robustly in mammals. However, the data are remarkably strong that there is a modicum of evidence that in humans with debilitating diseases, melatonin may have some beneficial actions. I have to tell you that no matter where you go in the literature, whether you're looking at allergies, autoimmunity, neurodegenerative disorders, um, diseases like, for example, insomnia, anxiety, whatever, almost invariably someone has reported a positive effect on melatonin on chronic modern diseases. Are there exceptions to that? I presume that there are, but wherever I've looked, I've found that melatonin seemed to be helpful. Now, does this mean that everyone in our modern world who's dealing with a modern disease should be taking melatonin? I don't really think so. But when I'm talking to patients who've got chronic illnesses, who have serious medical problems, who are struggling with their sleep, struggling with their energy, struggling with their mood, one of the things that I will use is high doses of melatonin. And the reason is the profound clinical benefit you will observe in patients when you use it. This is one of the things that you'll see in the literature on this. So lifespan parameters of female uh, CBA, this is a specific strain of mice, given melatonin in their drinking water uh, five days each week, beginning when they were six months of age until their natural death. That's two milligrams per liter. Um, to extrapolate this to humans, right? Two milligrams per liter of water. I generally tell people to drink somewhere between like three and six liters of water a day that breaks down at higher rates of water loss due to stress. Um, but if you do that math, right, it's like six, seven, eight milligrams of melatonin in a day, right? Um, the rats are, or mice are obviously not drinking that many liters of water because that's not how much water they need. But look at the massive change in life expectancy you see with the melatonin. This is a really exciting finding, and we should be clamoring for more research on melatonin. This is what happens when you give it to uh, Drosophila melanogaster. Again, huge improvement in age. Look at this. This is 
if the regular regular um, Drosophila are, are dying at 60 days, the ones with melatonin are dying at 80. That's a 30% improvement in lifespan. It's a really big deal. Okay. In contrast, the, and this is their concluding remarks, in contrast, the evidence suggesting that melatonin may promote survival in animals slash individuals with an abbreviated life expectancy because of disease or toxin exposure is generally more consistent and future research should be directed to this possibility. Translation, the sicker someone gets and the more medical problems they have, the more likely it is that melatonin is going to help them. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road in clinical practice. Introduce me to a 60, 70, 80, 90 year old who doesn't have any clinical complaints and I'll find you somebody who's lying about their age. Once you're 60, 70, 80, you have a certain number of chronic diseases. They may be what we call basically normal aging. Like nobody has pristine coronary arteries. You can even find uh, plaques in the arteries and vessel walls of young people. They're just not big enough and inflamed enough to create significant problems in the vast, vast majority of people. Aging is inevitable. What Ryder is saying here is essentially that there may be therapeutic benefit and even a longevity benefit to people with chronic disease. From my perspective, the sicker someone's getting and the worse results we're seeing clinically for them, the more likely I am to pull out melatonin to try and get them relief from their symptoms. And in the end, the cost of melatonin is very low. The upside is potentially huge. So I do counsel patients as they get older, as their sleep deteriorates with just age-related changes, just normal, what we call aging, right? I say to them, there is more and more likelihood that you will benefit from melatonin. And so it's totally reasonable to start a low dose of this. From what I recall with a, a conversation from a friend with a friend of mine, Cameron, who actually works with my team, he's down in Australia and his podcast is Regi Flow Nutrition. If you wanna go check him out, I think he podcasted with Russell Ryder when he asked Russell, if I recall correctly, Russell said he was taking a small, you know, sub 10 milligram dose of melatonin every night. And you can go check that out and try and figure out what he's taking yourself. But bottom line here, I would be taking a uh, supplemental melatonin um, if I were getting on in years 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, depending on how many chronic illnesses I have. Now, the other element of this, before I get any deeper into this, is pill fatigue. Like I said at the beginning, pill fatigue is inevitable. And so it's always a negotiation with the patient of, do you really want to sit down and take this many pills at night? And then, you know, at what point do you want to take a pill holiday? There's really solid reasons for taking a holiday from the number of supplements you're taking. Um, there's multiple reasons for that, but the most important one is this concept of what we call tachyphylaxis. Tachyphylaxis is the tendency of the body to down regulate or oppose whatever you're trying to do with your drugs. So for example, you put a drug into a system that increases the number of receptors for a neurotransmitter. The body may respond by down-regulating levels of that neurotransmitter. Um, a great example of this would be caffeine, right? So caffeine, um, these uh, xanthine oxidase, no, not a xanthine oxidase inhibitor. It's a um, xanthine alkaloid, if I recall correctly, and it blocks adenosine receptors, right? So what's the natural response of the body? increase the number of adenosine receptors that you have. This is why somebody who withdraws from coffee, having been drinking six, seven, eight cups a day, they pull the coffee off and all of a sudden, man, they feel way, way more tired than they ever did before they got into that six to eight ounce, six to eight cup of coffee uh, habit, right? This is fundamentally the physiology behind withdrawal. 
we may surmise or suspect that if you're dumping huge doses of anything into the system, I don't care if it's tyrosine, krill oil, magnesium, vitamin D, the body may downregulate its ability to absorb those things in opposition to what you're trying to do. And that's part of why you have to lead with food. You have to lead with food because there is simply no way to out supplement a bad diet. You can ask anyone in the health and wellness industry if that's true. And if they have any, just even scintilla of common sense and experience, they'll tell you it's absolutely true. Okay, enough about that. DHEA is another one of the supplements that I really struggle to not recommend to everyone as they get old. So what is DHEA? Uh, this is from the paper DHEA Hypes and Hopes. Fabulous paper. I really enjoyed this one. So DHEA and its sulfated form, dehydroepiandrosterone, say that 10 times fast, sulfate, are the most abundant circulating steroid hormones in humans. In animal studies, their low levels have been associated with age-related involuntary changes, including reduced lifespan. Extrapolation of animal data to humans turned DHEA into a super hormone and an anti-aging panacea. It has been aggressively marketed and sold in large quantities as a dietary supplement. Recent double-blind placebo-controlled human studies provide evidence to support some of these claims. Translation. This is the most abundant circulating steroid in your body. Steroid hormones, for those of you who haven't heard, are vitally important to life. Derangements in these cause all kinds of mayhem and disease. And optimizing hormones is one of the key things for optimizing both your vitality and your capacity to do work and live your life now, as well as your longevity. That literature is very, very well established. Okay. In animal studies, what you'll see, and in humans, you're going to see that these levels drop over time. Now, there's a chicken or the egg question here. Are people getting older because DHEA levels are dropping, or are DHEA levels dropping because people are getting older? Now, this goes back to vitamin D, right? Because the question is, oh, if we normalize the DHEA, are we going to mitigate the effects of the reason that the DHEA is low? Like maybe your DHEA is low because you eat a terrible diet and you never exercise and you never go outside and all kinds of other things that may affect DHEA production. Well, just giving you supplemental DHEA doesn't necessarily restore all the different things that doing all those different things would do for you in nature. Very clear example here would be the sunlight with vitamin D. Giving someone 5,000 IU of vitamin D daily is not the same as having that person sit outside in full spectrum sunlight with a UV index of 10 for 30 minutes, you know, on a summer's day. Okay. So it doesn't stand to reason that because the DHEA is low, we can reduce symptoms or prolong life by supplementing the DHEA. However, dot, 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 foreshadowing, foreshadowing, foreshadowing what you'll find. And some of these, these trials are amazing, right? I highlighted these. I don't really want to go through and read all of them for you because you can find this paper on your own. The bottom line here is that when you start to look at the small scale clinical trials that have been done of DHEA, you find some really, really profound clinical responses. This is why for men who are on testosterone replacement therapy, I recommend that they take DHEA. This is why for women who are on bioidentical hormones, I use DHEA as part of the supplementation protocol. This is why in somebody who comes to me and says, I have any number of age-related diseases or symptoms, I will use DHEA uh, judiciously so long as the serum level is low. If the serum level of DHEA is low, there's no reason not to use a supplemental 
dose, provided there's no contraindications. Obviously, you should talk to your, do your, your doctor or other practitioner before making changes to your diet and lifestyle. This is the part where I remind you that I don't practice medicine via social media and that you should, you know, consult someone who's competent like me uh, before you make these changes. We are taking new patients. You can schedule a consultation through my link tree um, and you can get on the phone with one of my team members to figure out if working with me and my practice and my team is a good fit for you. Anyway, they find really profound therapeutic benefits to giving people supplemental DHEA in a really broad range of different metrics. I've found the same things true in my practice. I will also tell you that you cannot predict, or at least I haven't been able to figure out how to predict who's going to respond to DHEA in a significant way. Who's going to see the lift in their energy or the improvement in whatever illness or symptom you're trying to, to help them get resolution of, right? And a lot of this is stuff that's under the hood, so to speak. Like if you look through these studies, you're going to see that a lot of them focus on bone mineral density, which is a really critical metric of overall health and well-being, right? You certainly want to have strong, healthy bones as you age. Um, but that sort of thing is below your, your notice. And that's another reason why it's hard for me not to recommend it to anyone, say, over 50, uh, and particularly those younger than 50 who are struggling with hormone optimization. Okay. Beyond DHEA, beyond melatonin, uh, there's a handful of other supplements that I could have gotten into, things like pregnenolone. We, I just didn't have time today. But one of the things that I really wanted to talk about was minerals. You know if you follow me on social media that I won't shut up about minerals. Minerals are the spark plugs of life. Linus Pauling said you can trace every disease to a mineral deficiency. I strongly believe that's true. I also believe that you that heavy metals are incredibly important for the pathogenesis and pathophysiology of modern disease. It's why I do so much HTMA interpretation at my practice. It's why I pay attention to studies where they look at trace element levels in hair, in urine, in the blood. It's why I use nutritional supplementation fundamentally in my practice and why over the years, working with many different modalities and many different practitioners, if there's one class of nutrients or supplements that can really move the needle for people, I think it's the minerals. That's not to discount the importance of B vitamins, because if you don't realize this, let me break it down for you. The B vitamins and the minerals all work together. If you don't have enough B vitamins, you are not going to be able to utilize minerals that are being pushed into the system. There's a lot of ins and outs to mineral dynamics. I break those down in the HTMA webinar I did with Clark Engelbert. We talked about the realities and myths of copper toxicity the other week, earlier this September. We're going to be having more webinars coming out. We have them currently scheduled the first Thursday of every month. Make sure you tune into those. They're going to be incredibly valuable and eye-opening, and you will get a lot out of them. If you're interested in my HTMA uh, course with coaching, uh, you can find that through my special offers page, which is in my link tree. We're going to be enrolling a new cohort of that in the end of October. It is exceptional. We've gotten rave reviews for it. Check it out. Sign up. Get the notifications. Okay minerals. So this is a really interesting paper by a really interesting fellow named David Thomas, whose background is pretty, pretty fascinating. This paper is the mineral depletion of foods available to us as a nation. That's the United Kingdom or Britain. I don't know what they call it, but you get the idea from 1940 to 2002, not the most recent data, right? That's 60 year time span there. We've had another 20 years, but you can extrapolate the changes that they saw and you can draw your own conclusions. So this guy basically took uh, levels from a um, review of the composition of foods 
and compared how the mineral con content of food was changing over time. Um, this guy is a, an expert in mineral exploration. He then went back to become a chiropractor, which I think is totally fascinating and makes total sense to me because when you start working with minerals, um, clinically you see profound effects on people. And when you look at how we've changed the earth and how we're manipulating the earth and exploiting its mineral resources, a lot of the illnesses you're seeing arise in the populace start to make a lot more sense. I covered a little bit of this or alluded to it also in my uh, video that I made earlier today on uh, hidden toxins and first responders and veterans. So anyway, enough about this guy. Very interesting fellow. I'm going to skip ahead to the part that I think is most uh, illuminating. This is a table that's a summary of his results of, of the mineral depletion in five different categories of food products, again, in England. So from 1940 to 1991, the vegetables that he looked at saw massive declines in the majority of minerals that they contained. I mean, look at this. 76% drop, 46% drop, 49% drop. Same thing in fruit. You see double-digit declines in mineral density in meat, double-digit declines in mineral density in cheeses and in dairy in general. You see double-digit declines. You even see a 97% drop in copper. Now, critics are going to say, oh, well, you know, maybe the analytical methods in the 1940s weren't the same as in 2002, okay, to which he would tell you these methods were no less accurate than the modern automated ones that just took a lot longer time. So we know that our food is nutritionally depleted. And the reason that I don't just tell you all based on this, oh, go out and take a multivitamin, is there are many, many, many other factors that affect mineral balance in the human body. The overall trend is that people who eat a more mineral-dense diet live a longer life. When I'm assessing a food for its overall value, to a patient, let alone a whole group of patients, one of the number one things I'm looking for is, is it dense in minerals? Because what you'll see is the lowest tertiles, quartiles, however they divvy it up in these studies, the lowest tertiles and quartiles for nutrient consumption, micronutrient mineral consumption specifically, tend to have the highest all-cause mortality. I didn't have time to prep all those papers and, and show them to you, but believe me, I've been through them in the past. I don't think there's any debate about this. This isn't just like the world according to Dr. Stillman and all the other, you know, um, out there integrative holistic wellness doctors. If you look at the just bread and butter nutrition literature, a mineral dense diet is associated with better outcomes, better longevity, lower morbidity, lower mortality. That's also why ultra processed foods are so poisonous. It's why they're so bad for you. They've generally speaking pulled all the the micronutrients, the minerals, and the B vitamins specifically out of these foods. Now, I just mentioned B vitamins, and I want to be really clear. We may suspect that the decline in mineral content of these foods has, has also been accompanied by a decline in B vitamins. I didn't have time to prep a paper on that, uh, but overall, the, the public is eating less and less in terms of content of B vitamins. Um, and the reason that's so important is that B vitamins help us utilize minerals, but they're also critical for getting rid of heavy metals. Why is this important? It turns out that when you take and refine 
minerals from the earth to be used in fertilizers, you don't go through a process of getting rid of the heavy metals. That means we've basically been doping our soils with heavy metals like cadmium, lead, arsenic, mercury with our fertilizers in trace amounts that add up over time. It also means as a byproduct of that, because we use fossil fuels, we're constantly basically creating more of these in the environment that are then being rained down on our soils and therefore incorporated into our crops. This means it's more important now than ever to be consuming a mineral dense diet because those minerals will chase the, or help you mitigate the effects of those heavy metals. I believe that's part of why they're linked to a, a lower all cause mortality. Why again, I would not use a single multi-mineral is simple. I don't know what your mineral status is because I don't have labs on you. And I would be loath to recommend you all take the same pill or supplement when it might contain an element that you actually have too much of, you will see this in people's labs, right? Copper's a big one. Most multi minerals that I've looked at contain copper. There are lots of people out there who don't need more copper on the contrary, they need less. And so giving them more copper, I'm concerned about do most people get away with multi minerals? Sure. If you told me you absolutely did not have the money for lab testing and medical care, are you better off taking a multi-mineral than not taking one at all? My first response to you would be, are you eating a mineral dense diet first and then think about the supplement? The other thing is a lot of you have no excuse to not go out and actually start to garden some of your own food where you can actually uh, control the mineral inputs to that food and increase the mineral content yourself by picking and choosing what you fertilize it with. So, uh, the sixth dimension asks, can you have too much vitamin C? The answer is yes. The form of vitamin C is critical. I didn't have time to talk about whether or not to take vitamin C. Uh, I use supplemental vitamin C, but it's complicated and I don't want to put out content that doesn't do justice to how complex the issue is. So more on that at a later date. Okay. Um, this is another really interesting paper that confirms what I was you know, talking about before that specifically goes into why the mineral density is dropping. So this is a paper called the evidence of decreasing mineral density in wheat grain over the last 160 years. In this study, what they did is they looked at the, I believe it's the longest running soil and crop mineral experiment in the world established in 1843 at Rothamsted in the United Kingdom. They looked at the mineral concentration of archived wheat, grain, and soil samples from the broad bulk wheat experiment. These levels were determined and trends over time were examined in relation to cultivar yield and harvest index. The concentrations of zinc, iron, copper, and magnesium remained stable between 1845 and the mid-1960s, but since then have decreased significantly, which coincided with the introduction of semi-dwarf high-yielding cultivars. Translation, by changing the type of wheat that was being cultivated, they changed the concentration of minerals in the food. In comparison, the concentrations in the soil have either increased or remained stable. Similarly, decreasing trends were observed in different treatments receiving no fertilizers, inorganic fertilizers, or organic manure. So what does that mean? It means that the type of, of plant or animal matters significantly and is in fact more important than the treatment that you're giving the soil in terms of its fertilizer. This is why I'm a big, big, 
big fan of uh, heritage breeds of anything. I don't care if it's tomatoes or cattle, or corn or whatever. I am deeply, deeply distrustful of all the crops and all the animals that have come out of the Green Revolution. The Green Revolution, it's like the single, we've managed to create enough caloric supply to feed a world of what, seven, eight billion people. Um, but all of them essentially are malnourished from a mineral and vitamin standpoint relative to the optimal. So it's just, it's kind of sad. It's, it's a very sad actually. Okay. This, this paper was really thoughtful and I don't have time to get into all of this. I think it's very interesting that some of these researchers are in, you know, Iran. I find that the Iranians, Iranians, whatever, I find them coming up often in the literature I review. I suspect it's because they're not controlled by the same idiots who control uh, life and science in the West. But I digress. <clears throat> okay, this this is a great paper and a great abstract because they really summarize what I see in clinical practice with minerals and metals, having done hundreds and hundreds of levels of these minerals in both the hair and the blood and taking care of the patients who the levels are on. So here's what they say. Minerals play a major role in regulating cardiovascular function. Imbalances in electrolyte minerals are frequent and potentially hazardous occurrences that may lead to the development of cardiovascular diseases. Yes. Transition metals such as iron, zinc, copper, and selenium play a major role in cell metabolism. However, there is a controversy over the effects of dietary and supplemental intake of these metals on cardiovascular risk factors and events. Since their pro-oxidant or antioxidant functions can have different effects on cardiovascular health, while deficiencies of these trace elements can cause cardiovascular dysfunction, several studies have also shown a positive association between metal serum levels and cardiovascular risk factors and events. Thus, a J or U-shaped relationship between the transition minerals and cardiovascular events has been proposed. Given the existing controversies, large blah, 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 blah. Okay, here's the bottom line. And here's what I want you to take away from this whole paper and everything I've just said. There is a J or U-shaped relationship between transition minerals and cardiovascular events. In other words, that J or U-shaped relationship, if you get too little, you will run into a lot of problems. That's deficiency. If you get too much, you actually run into overload and this creates its own problems. So you want an optimal intake. Finding that optimal intake is, I got to tell you, I really think it has to be individualized to you because over and over again, I see people coming in who think they're eating a healthy diet. We look at their labs and we find surprising uh, associations, uh, surprising uh, results that change how they eat, how they work, how they live their life. And this gives them the results that they really wanted. That's why I can't come up with, I, there's a reason this is not like you all need to take Dr. Stillman's multivitamin or multimineral. Okay. However, there's one mineral <clears throat> that all in all, I think is most important for people to increase their intake of. And the reason is honestly very simple. It's the mineral that seems to be most efficient in the public at large. And it is the most uh, well-researched of all the minerals re with regards to your all-cause mortality. And that's magnesium. So the translation, the higher your magnesium intake, generally speaking, the lower your risk of death. I have not been able to find anyone finding a level of magnesium that didn't, that increased mortality in a population that wasn't somehow very metabolically abnormal. 
like a population like, for example, uh, on dialysis who have kidney failure, the vast, vast majority of people I see benefit significantly from a magnesium supplement. However, I want you guys to understand something that most people are not aware of and do not tell you. And that's that your dietary magnesium intake can vary a lot. And I mean a lot. I will have people coming into the practice who are consuming less than 200 milligrams a day of dietary magnesium. And I can coach them into a diet of 800 milligrams a day of dietary magnesium. Now I got to tell you, I question those numbers because I question how much mineral content there is in any given food stuff on the shelf. I don't trust the ingredient labels anymore like I used to. But the bottom line is this, you can increase your magnesium intake by changing your diet. And here's the other thing about that. What you're going to see in the literature is whenever they do a study where, for example, they find that, um, uh, let's say like increasing your intake of fish or increasing your intake of nuts, uh, reduces your risk of death or it reduces your risk of some kind of morbidity, mortality endpoint that we care about. What you're going to see is that those, uh, foods contain an abundance of different nutrients that when you increase the load in the diet are associated with improving different outcomes. So nuts and seeds are a great example of this. Nuts and seeds are loaded with minerals, right? But I'm not fixating on the nuts and seeds because of, for example, their content of certain omega-6 fatty acids or because of the manganese or because of the zinc or because of the copper or because of the molybdenum or whatever else you care about in nuts and seeds or the arginine, which is an amino acid. I'm focusing on them as a whole food because your the nutrients you really need occur in nature in a ratio within the foods that's, I believe, very important. And there's more and more we're learning about food biochemistry. I was just listening to a really interesting um, podcast by Jay Campbell where he's talking to a food expert about peptides in food. Apparently, there's peptides in food that have effects on our physiology that, that I was not aware of. I have to more to learn about this. This is a very recent revelation for me literally just today. But I want you all to understand we're still figuring some of this stuff out. And it explains or can help explain why you don't see people on like lab-derived diets you know, having profound improvements in life expectancy and why over and over and over again, when you talk to people in the health and nutrition space, the bottom line is simple. The more nutrient dense your diet, the less processed food you eat, the closer you are to nature, the better off you are. Now, Kevin asks an interesting question, which is what does a mineral rich diet look like? For example, lunch or dinner. That is, um, a big question that I actually coach people on or that I counsel patients on. Because a lot of the time, what you have to understand is that not only are we going for a rich, mineral-rich diet, but we're actually trying to manipulate mineral ratios in the diet. Um, but generally speaking, a mineral-rich diet is whole foods, minimally refined, minimally processed, and you want a diversity of different foods as well. So for me, like a great lunch or an example of a great lunch would be something like sardines with a grain. Let's call it brown rice. Maybe I'd have some quinoa. Maybe I'd have some farro, maybe I'd have some uh, lentils or legumes or something like that. So I have a carbohydrate, add some nuts and seeds, maybe an ounce of pistachios, an ounce of pine nuts, an ounce of walnuts, pecans, whatever I have in the pantry, whatever I feel like adding, um, add some herbs, add some spices, add a quarter teaspoon to uh, a half a teaspoon of sea salt, maybe add some soy sauce if I feel like making it taste to have a different flavor profile and add some green leafy vegetables, onions, alliums, garlic, leek, shallots, scallions, and you have a very mineral dense diet. My morning smoothie is another example of this. I'll add a handful of green leafy vegetables like spinach, 
to um, one carat, uh, my detox powder, which is behind the paywall on my Substack for anyone who cares to look at it. It's a mix of different things that I find work really well to help people um, improve their overall metabolic health and flexibility. Uh, so I take that powder plus the green leafy vegetables, plus a carrot, plus some fruit, one banana, two bananas, a couple of stone fruit, like, um, peaches or plums, uh, maybe an apple. And then I throw in, um, like I said, or did I say this already? A nut or a seed. Often I'll use soaked chia or flax seeds, or I will add, um, some kind of tree nut, pecans, almonds, walnuts, whatever. And then, uh, on top of that, I'll add a protein powder, um, Often it'll be a collagen protein or a bone, uh, some kind of bone protein, because that's basically a collagen pro protein. Uh, and then I will add molasses, one tablespoon. And that's just a couple of quick examples for you of mineral dense uh, uh, meals. So I hope this video has been helpful. Again, check out my webinar that's coming up uh, this coming weekend on high blood pressure. That's the first link in my link tree. Um, be very skeptical of anyone who says all of you should take this because anything that you should take, someone should be explaining to you why it matters in your unique context and how it's going to help you get to your goals. If you'd like to coach with me or be coached by me, rather, uh, you can apply for consultation in the, uh, my link tree. Uh, we are taking new patients at the practice. And if you want more information about that, go to the link tree, hit the schedule consultation tab. And uh, I think that's it. That wraps it up. Take care, everyone. Have a great day and don't forget to get outside.